Well, good morning, Life Fellowship. It's good to see you today. My name is Dan. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. Today we are in the book of Galatians, which we've already read from this morning. And uh, we are in a transition time. So we have taken the first half of the book of Galatians. And we've kind of looked at uh, the purity of the gospel. There was a problem in the early church with, uh, with them adding works to salvation and, and traditions and so forth. And so now today we're going to start with a new part of our series called Gospel Transformation. So what, is the, what are the practical implications of what we studied in the first part of this, this study? And that's where we're going to be uh, this morning. I'm really excited about the passage, one of those passages that when it, when it was assigned to me, I'm like, yes, this is the one I want. It's only three verses, but it absolutely is rich with content. So I hope you have your Bibles. We're going to go back and read in just a moment what we heard read a moment ago. And then also, this is just one of those things where I think you'll be able to jot a few notes and, uh, and make some things to think about during the week. You know, every few years, there's this, this kind of this thing that happens in our country, our culture that, you know, I don't think it's strategically planned. It's just how human nature is. But the Hollywood or, or the media at some level, they, they put out one of these stories about, about an animal that was in... in uh, their version of prison was usually in a zoo or in an amusement park, and people could come and watch it perform and so forth. And, and it just, just seems like if you, you know, I was talking to some younger friends of mine, and they were saying, have you seen Blackfish? And I think that movie is probably 10 years old or so, but it was the, Blackfish was the story of animals that had been captured in SeaWorld and uh, some of the things that happened and how their freedoms were restricted and, and so forth. And uh, there was one that I was listening to on um, NPR. It was like a, a six-part series that I kind of got sucked into. And uh, it was about a chimpanzee that uh, some British lady had, had seen in England. And, um, and she, she kind of like just was infatuated with this chimpanzee. And she was a woman of some means. So she literally built a sanctuary and purchased the chimpanzee. Uh, purchased his freedom and uh, put him in the sanctuary and, and had people come and try to acclimate him and, and getting used to be able to forage for himself and so forth. And then eventually moved him to Africa and she had him on like this private reserve, but, but they had to be really, really careful because they wanted him to be able to get in with a, another band of, of chimpanzees and took great care of him and spared no expense and, and she'd go visit him and so forth. And finally the day came where that they could release him into the wild to be with all the other chimpanzees. Uh, and, and they did. And uh, the, the other chimpanzees promptly killed it. <laughs> Which, I shouldn't laugh at that, right? <laughs> you know, but I'm thinking all of this long story, I was so invested in the story. And, and part of the theme of the reason they did the documentary was, was, you know, once they're in captivity, they don't know how to handle freedom. And, and so it, it, it was, but it was such a shock whenever uh, episode came on and it was a tragic ending. I was looking for a happier ending like at Free Willy. Some of you millennials remember Free Willy, right? Remember that epic scene where it jumps over the, the isthmus that, 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 you know, and, and, and the kids standing underneath it and watching it go over, and that's really, really cool. But now I'm going to test you. I'm going to test you now. How many of you are old enough to remember the story of the lions in the 1970s from which we got the great musical wonder, Born Free? Oh, so there are some old people in this room. 
All right. So in the 70s, the first one that I remember was Born Free, and it was the story of a lady who loved her lions. And they, now that one was successful. They were able to put those lions back out in Africa, and they did just fine. Uh, I don't know whatever happened to them, but, but uh, they, they, they managed the survival. So when you think often of the notion of being in bondage, then later experiencing freedom... It's not altogether uncomplicated. There are some issues that come. And we need to realize that even in a spiritual sense. Part of the transformative work of the gospel is to help us to live correctly under the freedom that God provides. There's something exciting about the prospect of living after living in captivity, of living outside of bondage, being able to make choices, not being in a slave-like condition. And as we look at this passage this morning, this is the beginning of God's explanation of what it can be and what it should mean to go from a system of bondage and slavery because of our fallen nature into the freedom that comes truly from God and only from God. So let's read the passage again together and look at what it says. Beginning in verse 13 of Galatians chapter 5. For you were called to freedom, brothers. I want to pause just right here. And I want you to notice, look at what it says. You were called to freedom. Do you know that originally we were created for freedom, but we messed it up? And when man fell, when man went into sin, when man rebelled against God's terms of freedom, we brought ourselves into slavery and subjection to the worst things that could possibly happen to us, death and pain. So we moved from the freedom that God had designed to bondage, but yet we thought it was freedom. But God said, no, but I'm going to call you out of that. And this is important to note because you have to understand when God gives you freedom spiritually, it's because he called you to freedom. We do not find it ourselves. We cannot earn it ourselves. We cannot achieve it ourselves. We do not deserve it of ourselves. We get freedom spiritually because God has called us to freedom and made it possible. So right there, in just those first eight words or so, we have a whole month of sermons on what freedom should be for us. But look as it continues. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So we're going to take these three verses, very simple verses, and we're going to pick them apart and we're going to apply them because what we have now is a movement from Paul's explanation to the Judaizers and to those who were still walking under Judaistic traditions and laws. And, and now he's explaining to this new church the dangers of the system of the Judaizers, but more importantly now to the transformation that occurs when we walk in the newness of life. That's the result of our newfound born-again freedom. Now, 
That word born again is important. In fact, I named the, the sermon Born Again Free. Because we need to understand true freedom only comes from being born again. Born again is a, an interesting term. We first see it introduced in John chapter 3, where John's talking to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is, you know, asking him all kinds of questions. He's a religious scholar. He's a leader. He's meeting Jesus privately and quietly and wanting to have some of the questions he has answered. And, and Jesus is giving him word pictures and, and, and a depth that he's sometimes not understanding and not mentioning. And he said, you know, you, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus looks at him like he's a crazy man. He's not understanding what Jesus is saying. He said, well, what are you talking about? He said, can I you know, crawl back up into my mother and, and be born a second time? And, and Jesus says, no, 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 you've got to be born of the water and of the spirit. And he's explaining something that's really, really important because it has to do with the nature of the flesh. In, in, the, in the New Testament, we have the word flesh translated from two different Greek words. One of them is, is the Greek word soma. And soma is, is the physical flesh. It's our flesh and bones and muscle and blood and, and ligaments and all of that. That's, that's soma. And it's occasionally used in scripture. But the other word that is used is sarx, S-A-R-X. And that speaks of our human nature, our human con condition, the, the more spiritual realm, that thing that makes us interested in sin, that drives us that is responsible for our passions, that thing that lives within us, that regardless of how you look or what color your skin is, whether you're male or female or anything else, it's that nature that we have inside. And so when we're talking about dealing with the flesh here, we're not necessarily talking about what we see, but rather who we are. Now, again, who we are has an impact on what we see, what we do, how we present ourselves, what we think is funny, what makes us cry, where we go, what our priorities, all of those things are interrelated, but there's a distinction. So when you're born physically, you're born soma. That's that, you know, I got to see a few little babies this morning and, and you know, you look at them and oh, they're just so sweet and adorable and so forth. That's soma, that's the flesh. But we also know that those same babies will grow up and they'll get ornery and they'll disobey you, and they'll pitch a fit in the store, and they'll embarrass you, and then they turn into teenagers, and then the fun really starts. And then they become adults, and they think they can get away with it full time. You know, and, and what is that? They're dealing with the sarks. They're dealing with the nature that's inside. That's the flesh. So when we, we, we see this, that, that's born again, says, you've already been born of the flesh, now you need to be born of the spirit. And so that's what Jesus was explaining to Nicodemus. The phrase actually gained popularity. Again, I don't know why I feel like I'm doing a tour through the 70s right now. But uh, about the same time, born again, uh, uh, became, or about the time that born free became part of a, our, our movie culture, born again was a phrase that was used in popularity in the media for one of the first times in American history. And it was because there was this peanut farmer who became governor of the state of Georgia, who was an old Southern Baptist boy. And his name was Jimmy Carter. And Jimmy Carter was running for president back in 1975. And, uh, and all of a sudden they said, well, what makes you tick? We've never had a Baptist pa uh, uh, be, a, be a president and so forth. And he was trying to explain what, mean, what be, being born again 
meant. And it became a phrase that became part of the national lexicon from that time uh, to this time. And again, it kind of comes and goes and so forth. But this is from John chapter 3. And this is what happens when the Holy Spirit of God renews us to life, takes that which is dead and resurrects it and makes it alive. That's being born again. Now, with that in mind, we have to understand, by, by the way, that's just a, that's a, a, a weird term when you, when you say born-again Christian, and we often use that, but that's kind of like saying, well, he's a male man or a female woman, even though in our culture that's even up for debate at times. You know, it's like, it's like, um, it's like being a, 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 a short midget, or it's like being a tall giant. When you say born-again Christian, you're born again, and you're also a Christian. Those are, those are two of the same words. So that's when we say that phrase, that's what it means. But spiritually becoming a Christian is not simply a physical, it's not at all a physical transformation. It's related to the physical flesh, but it's a spiritual transformation that's related to our broken human condition. And that's why we use it, and that's why it's significant. Because transformation begins with a spiritual rebirth. Now, I want to pause here and just lay a little bit of a foundation, then we're going to go through and, and tackle these three verses. And here's the foundation I want you to see because it's related to what was taught in the first five chapters. There are three domains in which we can live in our, in our, in, in, in spiritually, and, uh, and we need to be aware of them. The first is this, we can live in bondage. And when we live in bondage, this is legalism. When you live saying, oh, I've got to be good enough. There are rights and wrongs. I need to make sure I'm doing them. I've got to keep the law. I've got to keep the Ten Commandments. I will not be found worthy before God unless I keep all of the legal requirements for holiness. Now, our culture today, particularly in evangelical circles and Christian circles, we've kind of added to the definition, and there's more than one definition. But it is always this. Legalism is trying to live by a system of rules that makes us worthy of God. God's love and forgiveness. Whether that happens before salvation or after salvation, it's still the concept of trying to live by a system, a list of rules, a bunch of regulations that cause us to be worthy of God's love and acceptance for salvation and for benefit. And when you think of that way, you have a messed up view of why God loves you. God does not love you because you are good. God loves you because he is good. That's the difference. And until you get that truth, you'll always be trying to gain something that you will never be good enough to possess. You have to see God for who he is, the Holy One who has grace and mercy and calls us to forgiveness, calls us to reconciliation, calls us to restoration, calls us to life. And that is where freedom begins because we're viewing God correctly and we're recognizing that he's never loved us because we are worthy of love other than what he has assigned to us. You can't be good enough to gain his pleasure. You cannot be great enough to gain his respect. You cannot, you cannot be devout enough to earn a place in his kingdom. Those are given to him in grace and mercy to those he calls. The only way that you can get that is to be born again, to believe, to trust, to place your faith completely in him. So that is that moment of transformation 
that occurs with spirit. So there are people who are today living constantly in this bondage. Even as a Christian, for years I lived in this bondage. I was always afraid of God. God was going to turn me into a crispy critter. God was going to do all kinds of things. I, was, I, I have a, a, a group of young adults that meets at my home um, most weeks. We didn't this week because it was raining so hard. We met here, but, and, and they're just wonderful and so forth. And I was trying to explain to them a little bit of this concept this week and, and that I literally grew up in this system where, where I always thought that God was going to get me because I wasn't good enough. So, if, you know, and, 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 and I had all these things, of, you know, everything from I was going to get stuck with an ugly wife to, uh, you know, to, I mean, to, I was going to get fired, my house was going to burn down, my mom was going to die. I mean, everything. It was like I was constantly living like, if you don't do it this right way, if you don't do it this right way, God's going to get you somehow. And let me just tell you, that's its own form of bondage. And yeah, I, I guess it's its own form of hell. It was a horrible way because it did not allow me to see God for who he is. It did not allow me to see myself for how God sees me, which was forgiven. And so this bondage, this legalism, is its own form of slavery. But here's what some people do. They see that. They can never be good enough. And finally they say, I'm not even going to try anymore. And the pendulum swings to the other direction. And that's the other domain that many people are living in today. And that is when they live in self-indulgence. They're not even trying and this, folks, is license. License says, I'm just going to live by impulse. I'm going to live any way I want to. If it feels good, do it. I deserve a break today. As long as they're consenting adults, love is love. We have a whole bunch of, of, of different things that make us feel comfortable and living based on our own inclinations, our own desires, our own impulses, which, folks, is the flesh. It's the flesh that calls us to those things. Now, again, like with, with, with uh, uh, legalism, there's two versions of it. There's the person who's saying, well, I need to be good in order to be accepted by God and into heaven. And then there's the person who says, well, I believe in God, but I'm trying to earn God's love and, and, and I'm afraid of him. So even the believer can leave in legalism. Well, sometimes that happens in, in license as well. There's the person who says, hey, you know, I don't care. I don't believe in hell. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in anything. I'm just going to live in the moment. I'm going to, you know, live the life of the existentialist. This is all there is. Or I'm going to live the life of the narcissist. Or I'm going to live the life, uh, you, you know, of, 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 of the one who believes that, that uh, there is no hereafter. So I'm just going to live, you know, James Dean said, uh, live hard, or drive, live fast, die hard, and, and leave a good-looking corpse. You know, and that, that's kind of like that, that young mentality that says, this is all there is, so I might as well experience. You know, the, the, in the 90s and 2000s, it was YOLO, you know, you only live once. And that's, that became this kind of this theme for a generation. The, the problem with that is, is that there is no end. There is no depth. There is no conclusion. And, and except what they believe is nothingness. But we know that isn't what God has told us. So there's that. But there's also this, this kind of mentality that Paul is warning against that says, watch out for the person who says, hey, I'm forgiven. Hey, I'm on my way to heaven. Hey, I've got grace. So I don't have to live by the law. I can do whatever I want because God's got to forgive me. He's already forgiven me, right? I'm on my way to heaven. I'm part of his family. I can live any way I want to. And that is licentiousness. And that is forbidden as well. Now, I'm going to talk about this a little bit more in practical terms, but you see the two extremes? You got legalism on this side, and you got license on this side. So what is it that God wanted us to live? And why call this the golden mean of spiritual walk? It is that, which is in the middle, which is liberty. And liberty is when we live in love. 
Liberty is the calling that we have to love God first and best. And in doing so, what's the scripture say? It's the love of Christ that constrains us. Well, what does constrain mean? It keeps us from doing our worst. It keeps us from doing what our impulses cry out for. It keeps us from living a life of decadence and self-indulgence and narcissistic pleasure. It constrains us. We're not living to earn God's approval, but we're also not living apart from our status as God's redeemed. And in those two areas, this middle part is where success is. This is where Paul was calling us to. It's living for the right reasons in the right way. So this is thinking of those three things. Now we're going to unpack the five verse, or three verses of Scripture, and I think it'll make more sense to you as we do. So let's look, if we could, at verse 13 and follow through on there. <clears throat> and um, you know, I, I preached at a great church last week in South Charlotte, and I had such a, a great time. I walked in, and I said, how long, how long do I get? And they said, well, you know, 50, 50 minutes. And I said, 50 minutes? So I just want to tell you this is my last Sunday here, and I'm going to be going. <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. But no, 50 minutes is really good. So I, I don't have that long today, so, but bear with me. I think I can get through all this. Take notes. Study this some more on your own because you're as capable of studying this as I am, and I think it will help you in the week to come. So we're going to shoot through these pretty rapidly. Look, if you would, in verse 13. Look at what it says at the beginning. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity to flesh, but through love serve one another. Let's start with the concept of liberty. This is a value that we should have when we have been transformed by the gospel. And simply put, liberty is not doing what we could, but doing what we should. Let me say that again. Liberty is not doing what we could, but is doing what we should. Like I said, I, I work a lot with young people, and, and they're my favorite age to work with. I, I, they're, just, they're just amazing. I've, I've got you know, 25 or 30 that, that, that I meet with on, on a weekly basis, and they ask the best questions. They're, they're, in, you know, they're quizzical. They're, they're hilarious. They're, all these good things going on. But here's a question I often get from kids that are transitioning from being under their parents' authority and to having a lot of freedom. And they're saying, is it okay if I? I hear that over and over again. Well, how far is too far? If I want to, is that okay? But you know, the difference between young people asking that question and a lot of adults who are further along in their journey is we live that way, they're at least still asking. Too many of us are living with, eh, I'll worry about that later. Or, I'm not going to give a thought to that. Or, I'm just going to live in the moment. Liberty requires us to be thoughtful in how we live. It's not doing what we could, but what we should. And when we ask the question, is it okay if I were asking the wrong question? Because the focus is, is on us. And we're going to see in this passage, the focus is never on us. The focus is on God first and others second, and we're last. So we're not asking the right question. The right question is, what would God think? What has God said? What would God do? 
Those are the correct questions. Or are my actions going to impact my relationship with him and my ability to speak truth to others? Because that's a factor as well when we're living with others in mind. A focus on ourself will always lead to an abuse of freedom. This tendency is often why we all end up living in some level of bondage if we're not careful. Whether it's an addiction or debt or prison or fear or guilt or depression. And I'm not saying all depression is a result of sin, but I will tell you some depression is. Or even having to live under a totalitarian system. When we don't handle freedom correctly, there's another form of bondage that awaits us. This is why, let's talk about systems. This is why living in America has been in a unique experience. It's a little over 200 years old, but it's very precarious. Because even the founders in their wisdom warned us. They said, watch out. Because when you live in freedom, when you live in liberty, it has a corresponding responsibility that goes with it. Therefore, be very, very careful. And Ben Franklin said, well, you've got a republic if you can keep it. James Madison said uh, that uh, a nation rightly governed must first be rightly self-governed. Because if we don't govern ourselves, what happens? The government has to pass laws. And whoever is passing the laws has the power and puts everybody else under bondage. You see, and that's why having biblical values is so essential to true freedom. Because we don't do what we could, we do what we should when we're living biblically. This is the key. But you know, these things fall in other domains as well. And our freedom is not an entitlement to live in any way we want. When we do that, we've broken the privileges of freedom. Freedom is the opportunity to do the right things for the right reasons because we're governed by something higher than pleasure or achievement or power or self-indulgence. Ultimately, here's what freedom is for. Freedom is so that you can choose your master. That's what freedom is for. We all live under bondage at some level, but God says, live under me. And you'll find all the freedom you need and were created to enjoy. You know, and a lot of times, here's what, here's what people do. They say, oh, it's too hard. It's too hard. But you got to choose your hard. Because if there's only freedom and, there's, and, and, and bondage and you've got to choose your master, well, well, then choose the one that's better. You know, it, it's, it's, like, well, it's hard to get up in the morning. Yeah, well, it's also hard to get fired for being late to work. Choose your hard. It's hard to work a job 40 hours a week. Yeah, well, it's hard to live under a bridge. Choose your hard. Marriage is hard, getting along and paying the bills and all that. It's just hard. Divorce is harder. Choose your hard. Um, you know, uh, 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 Parenting, keeping the kids in line, putting them in bed, putting them in bed again, putting them in bed again, all of the different things that come with parenting. That's hard. You know what's really hard? When your kids grow up with no sense of right and wrong, no sense of values, and they break your heart. Friendships can be hard, but loneliness is hard. 
So choose your hard. Self-control, moderation can be hard, but so can addiction and all the things that come with that. That's hard too. So choose your hard. And God, when he calls you to salvation and he calls you to repentance, lets you be there. And from that moment forward, you can choose to walk in light or choose to walk in darkness. But if you really love him, you're going to choose right. You choose to walk in the light. Choose your heart. That's what liberty is for. Freedom to choose your own master. But let's go on to the next part of that. Okay, so it says you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So the second value that we see here is the value of purity. You see, if you walk for the flesh, you don't care about things like purity. You don't care about sin. You don't care about uh, going astray. You don't care about all the things that come with it. Purity is, is, is that which is closest to God. It's holiness. It's separation. It's, it's living set apart for holy purposes. We often dedicate our kids to the Lord. What is dedicate? Dedicate means to set apart for God's use. That's why we dedicate our lives to Christ. So we can be set apart. So all of these things are about living as close to God as we can. But the flesh, sarks, S-A-R-X, its root is carnal. At its root, it's about our fallen, broken condition. It's about pleasure. It's about ease. It's about comfort. It's about self-indulgence and entitlement. It's about self, I, me, mine. But the problem is it's insatiable. We can never get enough. We keep chasing it because it never completely satisfies. We never say, that's all. No, instead, we want it again, more of it, more often, better, more frequently. We want it, want it, want it, want it, because it doesn't give up. That's the path of flesh. And purity is the opposite. It's about restraint, waiting, self-denial, intentionality, purpose, staying close to a standard. Well, what is the standard that we should be living our life by? By what I feel, what I want, what I desire? No, but rather what my master says. And who is my master? God. And what has he told us? The word of God. And who is the word of God? Jesus in the living form and scripture in the written form. That's why it's important to know him and to know his word. That gives us protection to live out our freedom responsibly in purity. But that's not our bent. Our bent is always to stay outside of God's standards. Last, a couple of weeks ago, I was having trouble with my, my car. And so I had to take it in and get some adjustments. And I said, go ahead and give it a brake job and align it and everything else because it was just time. What I didn't realize that was my car was out of alignment. Because when I got in my car, I noticed that previously it had always pulled to the right, pulled to the right, pulled to the right. And if I left it, it was going to go in the ditch. So I was always having to make an adjustment, make an adjustment. And, 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 and realize that I was fighting against the natural inclination of my car. Well, folks, when we trust Christ, you need to understand something. We are born again. We have a new boss. <laughs> we have a new master. But we're still dealing with that old flesh. And you know what the old flesh wants us to do? Head for the ditch. 
It's always calling us to the ditch. And that's where we'll end up if we don't pay attention to where the lines are. And you got to grab hold of your steering wheel and you got to say, no, this is the way it's going to be. I'm going to stay within God's plan. I'm going to listen to his word. I'm going to follow his direction. This is living the straight and narrow. This is living the pure life. You say, that sounds like work. Choose your hard. Choose your hard. This idea that's coming to Christ gives us the privilege to live any way we want to is not biblical it is not of the Spirit of Christ. And by the way, in our world today, we really need an alignment. The ditch is very broad and there's a lot of people heading for it right now. And if we're going to navigate the journey that God has assigned the church in this generation, we need to be aware of our tendency to drift into the ditches individually and as a church and as a family, and as a nation. And the only way that you and I can be secure in a, a safe journey is to stay in the Word and to heed it. Even if you're the only car on the highway left staying between the lines, it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. The fact is, Today, we have an opportunity. We have an opportunity in our culture. We have an opportunity in our homes. We have an opportunity in our neighborhoods, in our places of work, in our basic relationships, on our sports teams. Everywhere we go, we have an opportunity to be salt and light. We have an opportunity to say, this is different. But you know what the culture has done? It has turned pure living into an epithet. In fact, we mock people. Well, look at you, Mr. Puritan. Look at those puritanical values. Yeah, you know old values like stay faithful to your wife. You know those kind of puritanical values. Like those values of not, not cheating your neighbor. Those kind of puritanical. Notice the values that they're always criticizing. They're criticizing the values of scripture. And they're saying live for yourself. And what they're really saying is give in and head for the ditch. And so in our country, we need some people who say, watch out for the lines, watch out for truth. This is God's way. And people will holler at you and people will be upset with you, but you're not going to be in the ditch. And in that, we can save our families and save our churches and save our nation. But if we all veer into the ditch by ignoring the word of God, we're in trouble. And whether we're talking about gender identity and sexual expression, or we're talking about cheating on our taxes and living lives as good neighbors and behaving ourselves on social media, whether we like it in the areas that we're good at or the areas we're bad at, we have a responsibility to consult God and live in purity, to strive toward holiness. You say, well, that sounds legalistic. No, because we're not doing it to earn God's love. We already have that. We're doing it because we love God. That's why we're doing it. And at the core, at the core, our behavior is a reflection of what we really believe and what we really love. And if you love God first, most, and best, then there's going to be an indication of it in the way we live. Which brings me to the third part. Look, if you would in the third part of verse 13, but through love, serve one another. But through love, serve one another. Now, all you guys that were just in, oh, here we go, I'm, I'm checking out. Don't do that with me, okay? Because I want you to understand something. Biblical love is a hard thing. Biblical love is sacrificial. Biblical love involves a covenant. 
Biblical love requires sacrifice. Those are all very masculine, character-oriented traits. So guys, don't check out on me. And ladies, listen carefully. Because it is this. How you treat others matters in the kingdom of God. And it says very clearly, but through love serve one another. I want you to stop and think about the example of Christ. Christ, who knew he faced imminent death. Christ, who knew he was about to be tortured. Christ, who knew that this was the last meal that he was going to ever enjoy with his disciples. Christ, who knew that his earthly mission was about to be completed and the pressure of the universe and all time was upon his shoulders. In full knowledge of all of that, what did Christ do? Dropped to his knees, grabbed a towel, and washed feet. He washed feet. He didn't shout. He didn't scream. He didn't panic. He didn't cry. He didn't say, these people don't know what they're doing. He didn't do any of that. He served. And in a culture that is falling apart at the seams, when hatred toward the things that God loves is at a record high in our lifetimes, we have a responsibility to love, to return evil with good, to be kind in the midst of harshness, to be generous in the midst of thievery, to do, quite frankly, what is the opposite of what our sarks, our flesh, calls us to do. And I'm talking to me. I'm a little honorary. Did you know that? I don't mind getting people told every once in a while. I'm a Midwesterner. We're kind of plain spoken. But in the end, God has not called me to act on my most base impulses or my most natural inclinations. But God has required that I consider him and then take advantage of the Holy Spirit of God that lives in me by not living naturally, but by living supernaturally. Because i got to tell you, naturally, not a good guy. Supernaturally, you'll see Jesus. You'll see Jesus. And he said, your liberty that I have called you to is not so you can live any way you want to, but you live with others in mind. Serve one another. That's your responsibility. But I want you to remember something. Look if we would in verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he goes on, he takes it a, a, a little further because he wants us to remember something. Remember he says, now love your neighbor, serve your neighbor, do all of this out of love. And then he goes back and he kind of says the same thing again. He says, because remember this, the whole law can be summed up in one word. And I'm thinking, well, what is that one word? I'm a literalist, right? What is that one word? And then I had to study with the Greek and this word is logos. But in, in Hebrew culture, and remember Paul's basically a Hebrew, even though we got this in Aramaic and in Greek, Greek, 
you have to think like a Hebrew here. And one great idea is called a word. In fact, you know, in, for, for, the, for the Jews, the Ten Commandments are often referred to as the Ten Words. And so it's like a grand idea. It's like a deep truth. It's like a powerful statement. This is the word of the Lord. And so, now stop and remember where we're going with this. He said in verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled. It's summed up. After thinking about, why did he use fulfilled? Why did we just say it is? Because there's a predecessor to this. And what is it? Well, this isn't the great commandment. What is the great commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Then what's part B? And love your neighbor as yourself. This is the summation. Well, what is the formula? Love God first. When you love God first, best, and most, here's what you can expect. You can love your neighbor then. And you'll love your neighbor more than you love yourself. You'll love your neighbor in a way that's Christ-like. You'll love your neighbor in a sacrificial way. And in this, we have charity. Genuine love. What Warren Wearsby calls the circulatory system of the body of Christ. The more you love God, the more you love others. And if you don't love others, then you've got to ask yourself, do I really love God? Ouch. I don't like this one. Got to tell you, don't like it. You know why? Because my sarks bends toward hatred. I'm heading for the ditch. I want to get them told. I want God to put all of his wrath on them. You remember how I used to live where I was always afraid of God's wrath? Well, yeah, well, okay. And it's fine with me if you'll take a few others out too. You know, I'm always making statements. I'm like, you ought to be thankful. thankful. I'm not God. If I were God, I'd take care of you. Well, what does the Bible say? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, not Dan's not Dan's. It's not even my privilege to think that way. Because the reality is, if Dan got what Dan deserved, Dan would already be in hell and would have been there for a whole long time. I got grace and I got mercy. And how can I extend that to others? By loving them the way God loves them. And by loving God unconditionally the way he loves me. See, many of us choose the wrong definition of love. In the Greek, there's like 13, 14, 15, maybe more types of love. You see, English is so imprecise because, you know, people say this to me all the time. Well, love is love. You know where that's coming from, right? And I, No, it's not. I love my dog and I love my mom. I love football and I love pizza. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love God and I love the church. And I can tell you that none of those loves are identical. They're all different. In the scripture, we see these different kinds of love. There's a reciprocal love. It's philios. It's brotherly love. I love you, you love me. There's also eros. Eros is a selfish love. I love you because you make me feel good. That's where we get the term erotic. But the word that we see that God is using is agape. And the word agape is an unconditional love that basically says this, I love you because you need to be loved, period. I just love you. And that's the kind of love that God calls us first to him and then to others. Because if we love him, it's easy to love everybody else. Because we see things from his perspective. That's the transformative work of the gospel. That's what changes us, love, charity. And I'm afraid that sometimes 
Yeah, and, and, and I get it. I get it. You know, and Paul does this. Paul talks about, man, you're at war. You know, gird your loins. Never quite knew what that meant, but I'm ready. You know, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Grab your sword. Oh, yeah, man, sign me up. But the greatest commandment is love God and love others. So when you're fully equipped for war, you slay him with love. You stand for what is right. You resist. You don't compromise. Don't head to the ditch. But you got to love. And that's what liberty is for. You're not forced to. You do it because it's your nature to love. Why is it your nature to love? Because you've experienced love. And who have you experienced that love from that's unconditional? From God himself. So let it take root and bear fruit in your life. The fruit of the Spirit. Which brings me to the last thing. Look if you would. Verse 15. But if you bite one another and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Here's this big warning. He has to deal with it at the church at Corinth, the church at Galatia. He's always having to deal with this because you get a bunch of Christians together and we start fussing. He said, look, if you love God and you love each other, then quit it. Quit the fussing. Quit the fighting. Quit the arguing. Quit the bickering. Build on the foundation of truth that is lubricated by love. And yet, because we have this sarks, <laughs> this sin nature, if we don't watch it, we head for the ditch. And what do we do? We devour one another. We criticize each other. We gossip about each other. We're angry at each other. We divide. We divorce. We quit. We threaten. And he said, don't do that. Don't do that. He said, live in unity. Living in unity does not mean living in, un in, in uh, uniformity. And it doesn't necessarily mean unanimously. It means living with the ability to get along with each other. That's harmony. We're different in this room. And by the way, because we're all wired different, there are going to be some people that you just love spending time with and other people that are just like, you're getting on your very last nerve. But it doesn't mean you're not responsible to love them. By the way, there's some of you that when you see me get up to preach, it's like, ugh, the old guy's up there. And there's some of you, and Bing gets up to preach, it's like, oh, the young guy's up there. Right? This is not a competition. This is about the Word of God. Next week we have a guest speaker. It's about the Word of God. That's what matters. All we are is just megaphones, just projecting. It's about the Word of God. To the, to the degree, to the extent that the Holy Spirit uses us to teach truth, to that extent we've been successful. It's not about us. When you see things that way, there's one less thing to fuss about, one less to argue about. If you don't get your way, if you don't think we should do it this way or that way or whatever, at some point we have to say, but most of all, we live in unity. Because that's what Satan is all about, division. He wants us to be divided from God and wants us to be divided from each other. We must fight for unity. Why? Because our natural inclination is disharmony. Division, fussing, gossiping, arguing. That's our natural inclination. But God didn't call us to live naturally. He called us to live supernaturally, like him. So what do we do with this? 
Let me give you four questions and we're done very quickly. Number one, what are areas in your life in which you are currently living in bondage? What are areas in your life in which you're currently living in bondage? It could be an addiction. Maybe you need to go home and pour all the booze down the sink. Maybe you're hooked to pot. Drugs. Facebook, Instagram. Fox News, CNN. You say, that can be an addiction? Yeah. If it, if it prevents you from living the joy-filled Christian life that's hopeful in truth, then maybe you need to back away from it. If it has become an idol where you think more about it than you think about the things of God. Golf, shopping, work, the next promotion, the next degree, all of these can become idols. What is in your life that has become an idol and causing you to live in bondage? Because I think all of us, all of us, Dan Burrell, all of us, every once in a while, need to go on an idol-crushing binge. They're like weeds that grow up in our life. And we need to pull them and then burn them. Why? Because my flesh has always taken me into the ditch. Number two, who is someone you need to be loving more because of Christ in your life? Who? A person. Think of a face. Is someone that's absolutely driving you nuts. That you see them, you turn around and want to walk the other way. You're angry with them. They've hurt you. They've wounded you. They, they, they treat you with disrespect. They're, you, they're, they're, but there's somebody in your life in which you have a broken relationship and you realize that you are taking into your hands that which should belong to God and you need to work on that relationship and restoring it. Maybe your neighbor. Maybe your boss. Maybe your mom. But who is it? Number three. What is something you need to be loving more because of Christ in your life? What is something that you know you... Oh, I, I, I love working out. Great. What do you love more than God? Do you love his word? Do you love his people? Do you love prayer? Do you love meditation? Do you love sharing your faith? What is something you need to be loving more? Number four. What is a current conflict in your life where you need to seek unity? What is a current conflict in your life where you need to seek unity? I'm guaranteeing you with as many people in this church as are here this morning, somebody had a fight on their way in there, and now you're feeling really awkward. But you had a fight on your way to church this morning. You should have got the clothes ready last night. You should have got up earlier. Or maybe it's somebody at work that you just despise. Maybe it's your neighbor. Maybe it's a sibling. Maybe it's something you've held on to for a long, long time. And right then, Satan will say, oh, yeah, 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 but, yeah, but, yeah, but. No, 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 no. Just don't play the game. Just give it over to the Lord. When you stop and think about the truth, give the Holy Spirit time to speak into your life be shocked at what he'll sometimes bring. But he'll always give you hope and always give you a solution. You know why? Because freedom is his goal for you. Freed from bitterness, freed from conflict, freed from fear, freed from addiction, because you love him first, 
most and best. And when you sum that up, you love everybody around you as well. One of the things that God did, he said, every once in a while, I want you to be reminded of your family, your unity in Christ. Christ. 